0: Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, a shipwreck off the coast of Key Largo is identified as the steamship Hannah M. Bell, which sunk in 1911.
1: It carried cargo from the United States over to the Caribbean, over to Europe, and uh, so it's, it's, it was uh, used quite a bit and had a a good, good history there.
2: We'll take a look at early efforts to lure tourists to Florida. We see a lot of color images of some of the grand hotels uh, that were built by the uh, Henry Flagler and Henry Plant, um, some of the cultural sites, the Fountain of Youth Park, uh, some of the great uh, water resources, recreational activities. And we'll explore Audubon
0: Society records at the University of South Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
3: So I la you marina,
0: recording of opera singer Enrico Caruso was popular in 1911, Caruso is singing La Dio a Napoli, A Farewell to Napoli. 1911 is the year the world said farewell to the British steamship Hannah M. Bell when it sunk about six miles off the coast of Key Largo. Over the past century, the history of the shipwreck was forgotten. Eric Denson is with the group Diving with a Purpose and helped to identify the Hannah M. Bell. As Denson explains, Diving with a Purpose is a group of mostly African-American divers trained in underwater
1: archaeology skills. Diving with a Purpose is a maritime archaeology program. It started in 2005 uh, with a partnership uh, between the National Association of Black Scuba Divers and the National Park Service in uh, Biscayne uh, Park. Uh, The archaeologists there uh, there was only one archaeologist in the park who was really looking for some help to document the many shipwrecks and a lot of them historic shipwrecks in the park. So it was kind of a form of partnership that uh, she would train us in underwater archaeology skills and at the same time uh, we would help them perform their mandate to document uh, the shipwrecks there.
0: Once one set of divers in Diving with a Purpose are trained, they in turn train another group expanding membership. The group has now developed a youth training program.
1: One of the things, again, we started in 2005, it was only about three of us, and again, Brenda, the late Brenda Lesendorf, who was the archaeologist at Park, she said that, I'm going to teach you so you could teach others. And so we ended up starting a program that would actually, we would teach uh, um, underwater archaeology techniques and then have them come back and teach others, too. So the the program kept going and kept growing. Um, So we would groom our own instructors into the program. And then uh, slowly but surely, we started to get a trickle in of youth divers because it's open to all divers uh, as long as they have the qualifications uh, as far as the diver is concerned. And then we decided in um, 2013, we started our own youth diving with a purpose program which focused on just having youth from ages uh, uh, 16 to 21. And uh, again, last year oh, we had our first year, and we just finished our second year in this past July. So we've had two successful programs, and I'm proud to say we got funding from the National Park Service for next year.
0: Eric Denson and other members of Diving with a Purpose have helped to document an amazing number of shipwrecks over the past decade.
1: Yes, over the past uh, 10 years, we were able to document uh, 14 shipwrecks, uh, most of them in uh, Biscayne National Park and the National Marine Sanctuary, and it also included a couple of uh, Guerrero slave ship expeditions that we did off the coast of Key Largo. And keep in mind, too, this is a volunteer program, and we only do this uh, maybe one week or two weeks out of the year. So I, I think we've accomplished quite a bit in that time.
0: The Hannah M. Bell was built in England in 1893. The steamship traveled extensively, carrying sugar, cotton, and coal from Europe to South America to the Caribbean to the United States and back. The Hannah M. Bell's voyages came to an abrupt end on April
1: 3, 1911. It sunk over in uh, Elbow Reef, which is an area off of Key, Key Largo, and that area has claimed quite a few ships. Um, One of the famous uh, shallow uh, reef wrecks over there is called the City of Washington, and uh, uh, a lot of snorkelers and divers go over there as well.
0: Before the Hannah M. Bell ran aground off the coast of Key Largo, it had a couple of close
1: calls. Eric Denson. In 1907, uh, it ran into a a bad winter storm. Um, Some of the sailors suffered from exposure and frostbite. And another interesting story, in uh, 1909, it ran into the remnants of a hurricane, and there were several water spouts uh, that sprung up, and the captain actually shot, uh, you know, shot his shotguns at the uh, water spouts, and miraculously, they disappeared. Uh, But I think, again, he might have been drinking a little bit too much rum there for that one.
0: (laughs) While the ship weathered other storms, a particularly
1: violent one in 1911 sealed the Hannah M. Bell's fate and there were several attempts to uh, rescue the ship. Uh, Coast Guard Cutter uh, provided assistance. Uh, they were able to get the crew off of, uh, the captain and a couple of uh, crew members stayed on board to try to help savage, salvage and, and refloat the ship, but uh, to, to uneval- it wasn't able to do so. So they abandoned the attempts, and uh, I think uh, the total loss for the ship and the cargo was about $100,000.
0: The steamer Roosevelt, which Robert E. Perry took to the North Pole, was involved in a failed rescue attempt of the Hannah M. Bell. Even after it sunk to the ocean floor, the ship made headlines.
1: You know, again, it still has a storied uh, past even beyond that. Other ships have uh, actually sunk on top of it um, because, again, that's in a shallow reef area. Uh, several people were arrested trying to uh, loot or salvage uh, the engines and, and other machinery off of it. So um, Hannah Bell did not go out without a fight and <laughs> taking folks with him.
0: Federal agents arrested two ship's captains for stealing winches and engines from the wreck of the Hannah M. Bell. Over time, the shipwreck was forgotten. When scuba divers rediscovered it in the 1970s, it was thought to be a Civil War-era vessel that was nicknamed Mike's Wreck. In 2012 and 2014, Eric Denson and Diving with a Purpose helped to establish the Hannah M.
1: Bell's true identity. For years, it was only known as Mike's Wreck, and everybody said, well, why you call it Mike's Wreck? I think it was one of the local dive shops with dive captains. He found the wreck, and his name was Mike, and then they called it Mike's Wreck. Um, but in 2012, uh, and again, this is in a partnership with uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Uh, It was led by a principal investigator, Matthew Lawrence. Um, We did a small expedition in in 2012, and we were actually uh, able to map a small section of the wreck. The the wreck actually itself is quite large. It's over 300 feet long. And that expedition in 2012 um, was, was able only to map a very small section of the wreck. Maybe about 60 or 70 feet, but they got critical data um, that helped us identify the shipwreck. And there's different things that we could look at to help us identify it. Um, We looked at the dimensions of the the wreck, and it came very close to the size of the Hannibal. The site construction and characteristics um, matched the Hannibal. Um, it, the Hanna-Bell was a twin-engine vessel, a steel ship with rivets and that type of thing, and we could see uh, evidence of those there. And although we know there are several ships that were sunk in the area, this was the only remnants that matched the description of the Hannah m bell
0: After identifying the Hannah m bell a couple of years ago, in 2014, the group Diving with a Purpose and NOAA finished mapping the shipwreck.
1: We actually went back and did a second expedition, and we were able to map the majority of the remaining ship. So we went down there, um, this time with 24 divers, and we were able to to map uh, the remaining uh, uh, 240 feet of the wreck. So we had a much bigger team, and we were able to... Tackle it, and the conditions were were very cooperative at the time too.
0: Eric Denson explains the process that the volunteer divers of Diving with a Purpose went through to map the Hannah M. Bell.
1: Well, the first thing we do is kind of do a survey of the wreck site to get a lay of the land, if you will, and then we uh, we since since we had did an expedition in 2012, we try to continue from where we left off in 2012 when we were down this past year in 2014. So what we did, was ran a baseline which basically is a line that would go right down the middle of the wreck and uh, that line would have uh, measurement increments on it and usually feet or what have you, even that down the inches and we would use that as like again what we would call a baseline. We would then take measurements of uh, sections of the wreck in relationship to that baseline And then we would also do individual, what we call in situ drawings, which are drawings in place underwater, of those sections of the wreck. And so by a combination of what we call trilateration mapping, the trilateration mapping let us know where that particular object or section of the wreck is in relationship to the baseline. So... Um, a combination of those individual in situ drawings and our trilateration map uh, uh, measurements, we're able to build a composite map of the entire shipwreck.
0: After careful measurements are taken and detailed drawings are made
1: underwater, the work on land begins. But we want to finish some some of the drawings and, and finish our composite uh, uh, drawing. Um, we're still doing research, more historical research. Again, I mentioned our principal investigator Matt Lawrence is putting together a report, and we want to make these maps available to the general public too. Uh, again, this this uh, shipwreck is only in about 20 feet of water, and so it's it's accessible to snorkelers as well as divers. And NOAA wants to generate maps that says you know that folks going down to snorkel and dive they can know what they're looking at and understand the his- history behind. Uh, that shipwreck.
0: In addition to their work on the Hannah M. Bell, the members of Diving with a Purpose are keeping busy with other projects. We've
1: also, as I mentioned before, we've done uh, work on the Guerrero slave ship, but we've also done uh, work in Africa. We're partnering with George Washington University and also the Smithsonian. We're looking at uh, possible shipwrecks in Senegal. I just came back from Mozambique. I was training some uh, archaeologists from the University of Mozambique and the local dive uh, uh, group there, the pitanga divers're teaching them the same archaeology techniques and so we 're going to eventually look for um, probably slave ships, uh, uh, slave ship, shipwrecks there, and we can apply those techniques and map those shipwrecks and do historical research on those things as well so we 're definitely expanding beyond the borders of uh, Florida. <laughs> Eric Denson is with the group Diving with a Purpose who recently
0: identified and mapped the shipwreck of the steamship Hannah M. Bell. The ship sank near Key Largo in 1911, the same year this Enrico Caruso recording was popular.
3: (laughs) I'm not going tenero. Ritornano i la
0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. i have Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, find great books on Florida history and culture, and read our Florida Frontiers blog. Click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org.
3: Undercoming Coming down that railroad Track Hey look yonder undercoming, Coming down that railroad Track It's the orange blossom special Bringing My baby back
0: The train, the Orange Blossom Special, used to bring tourists to Florida, as Johnny Cash is telling us. Florida, of course, is well known for its tourism industry, and some pretty interesting brochures have been created to encourage tourists to come here. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have some brochures here dating back to the 1800s.
2: Yeah, that's right. As part of a uh, large collection we have here at the Library of Florida History called the Florida Pamphlet Collection. And it's really a uh, compilation of of any kind of ephemeral literature that was published uh, solely for the purpose of... Uh, attracting people to visit the state of Florida. And like you said, they date back uh, to about the mid-19th century, a few of them. Uh, and again, they range in topic from early agricultural interest uh, to until later in the 20th century, we start getting into uh, the, the height of the tourism industry here in Florida.
0: Well, you have one document here in particular from 1875 that shows that there was some pretty shameless promotion going on
2: yeah that's right, and we have to remember that this is really only a barely a decade after the end of the American Civil War. Uh, Florida was still trying to rebuild its economy. Uh, they had a change in demographics, uh, and the state government was trying to attract farmers to come into uh, what was then essentially vacant land throughout most of the peninsula and try and develop it and what we're looking at here is actually a uh, a brochure that would have been sent to uh, farmers all around the rest of the continental United States to try and uh, identify the best places to settle and start uh, crops, and it, it goes into detail about crop rotations. What type of uh, crops would have uh, would grow well here in Florida climate? Uh, and this particular one is is highlighting the New Smyrna area. Uh, and what the author of this particular brochure decided to do uh, was publish a question and answer uh, session with the commissioner of agriculture, who. Uh, Essentially, was the the predecessor of uh, the uh, commission. I'm sorry, it was the commissioner of immigration, who was the predecessor of the commissioner of agriculture today. And some of the questions here are, like you said, pretty shameless. Um, One question here is, do you have any mosquitoes, gnats, etc.? And the answer is yes, in some localities. Uh, Next question is, do you have many snakes? And the commissioner answers, very few. (laughs) And the last one I think is the best: Do you have alligators, and are they troublesome? The commissioner answers, yes, only on freshwater streams, but they cause no trouble. (laughs) So was kind of interesting. Great.
0: Well, of course, Florida's modern tourism industry really developed in the the 20th century, though, particularly after uh, the automobile was introduced.
2: That's right. What we're looking at here is a uh, brochure from about the mid-1920s. So this is the height of the land boom. Um, and this brochure is, is in color, for one, so there's a big difference, and it's filled with photographs. You know, the goal here was to get wealthy northerners to come down and visit uh, as tourists during the winter season. Uh, so rather than highlighting the uh, crop rotation schedules and things like that that we saw in the late 19th century, we see a lot of color images of some of the grand hotels uh, that were built by the uh, Henry Flagler and Henry Plant. Um, some of the cultural sites, the Fountain of Youth Park, uh, some of the great uh, water resources, recreational activities. Uh, and there are also a lot of photographs of bridges, you know, to show that there is now infrastructure built here in Florida. And then we can actually fast forward a few more decades to about the mid 20th century in the 1950s. Here we have another uh, almost entirely photographic brochure with very little uh, verbiage. It's all essentially photographs. Um, But the title here is, Come to Florida for a Vacation or for a Lifetime, That Golden Florida Glow. So here we see the goal is is trying to attract families to move and and to settle here in in the Sunshine State. And
0: I guess this collection is is really useful to help researchers and historians uh, uh,
2: look at how the tourism industry expanded and, and grew in the 20th century. Absolutely. And, you know, at the time of creation, many of these brochures were intended really to only last for a very short amount of time to help highlight some of the um, uh, current, you know, trends in, in uh, Florida, the society. But, but, of course, they've lasted. We house them here at the archive, and someone can really track the, the arc of uh, development here in the state over the course of the last century and a half. Beginning in the early 20th century and continuing into the mid-20th century, it was
0: Nathan Mayo who was primarily responsible for promoting tourism in Florida.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, Mayo was the longest-running commissioner of agriculture. He served for about 37 years uh, for the state of Florida. Um, and he was really the primary booster, I think, of, of the contemporary idea of what Florida is. So it's it wouldn't be a stretch to say that, that his office really um, came up with the idea of Florida as, as a land of, of bountiful sunshine, oranges, and, and opportunities. Uh, in fact, if you pick up uh, any of the brochures, in fact, we've got a, a large one here, it was published uh, between the 1920s and, and the early 1960s. Uh, it's very likely that his name is probably stamped somewhere on that on that piece of literature. And he worked with a lot of uh, local municipalities to produce uh, local-oriented uh, brochures and, and ephemera that would have been sent throughout the country and throughout the world. Uh, so he was a, an important singular figure uh, in the in the development of the uh, the, the tourism industry here in Florida uh, in in the early to mid 20th century, for sure. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources
0: for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa.
3: Well, I'm going down to Florida and get some sand in my shoe. or maybe California and get some sand in my shoe. I'll ride that orange blossom special and lose these New York blues. Whoa, whoa.
0: This is Florida Frontiers. The Audubon Society of Florida has a fascinating collection of records looking at the details of nature conservancy in the state over the past century. As Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com explains, those records are now at the University of South
4: Florida. Florida became kind of ground zero for this, uh, this plume hunting around the, uh, the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, and Audubon. Uh, the Audubon folks were the people who really stepped up.
5: That was Andrew Yuse, a librarian at the University of South Florida. He spoke to me about the Audubon Society of Florida and their collection housed at the library. Here he tells me what the Audubon Society did.
4: The Audubon Society is a national society and really uh, dedicated to the conservation of bird wildlife. So uh, here in Florida, there were huge uh, uh, rookeries, you know, huge nests of birds, all kinds of different wading birds that were all considered valuable at the time. While their plumes were valuable, the birds themselves weren't worth anything. So um, hunters would often kill. Tens, hundreds of thousands, and uh, and then these plumes would be used in ladies' hats all over the world.
5: The Audubon was interested in early 20th century conservation efforts. Andrew Hughes explains what they did in Florida.
4: The state of Florida, I think, at around the turn of the century, I think it had two wardens for the entire state, probably grossly underpaid and probably not very interested in um, the mission that they were there to do so very easy to pay off these people so the Audubon folks had dedicated you know wardens who were um, very uh, active you know in conservation so they became dep- deputized by the state and then these people would then kinda of police the uh, the areas. From the records
5: housed the library Andrew Hughes recalls what kind of life these Audubon activists lived while researching and recording the wildlife of Florida.
4: Obviously, it, it takes a special type to live in almost complete isolation. I mean, we had, uh, you know, someone was living on one of the aisles in Tampa Bay, and it would have been a very, you know, um, uh, you know kind of a very lonely existence for the most part so yeah and and especially because these these reports are every day you get to see the certain things that people fixate on whether it's weather or always messing with the the motor the, uh, the motor of their boat um the other thing that is interesting is a lot of these people weren't formally educated so they have a lot of slang terms for birds so the the audubon has graciously gone through the files and tried to of decipher some of that stuff for us and lets you know what species you can expect to encounter in any given folder.
5: Many women were involved in the Audubon Society, especially in Florida. Andrew Hughes describes their efforts to bring attention to the conservation of Florida birds.
4: After those two wardens were killed, that's when women's groups really started to bring kind of their, um, you know, their righteousness to bear, you know, and and rather than, bringing it to bear against the wardens. They brought it to bear against other women and that these plumes are really unacceptable as, you know, fashion ornaments. And um, really by the 1920s, the, you know, the plumes were starting to go out of fashion.
5: Here, Andrew Hughes tells us what is in the Audubon records.
4: Um, what we got were uh, the records, the daily game warden records for um, the the Florida Keys, Lake Okeechobee, and Tampa Bay. Those are three of the um, the biggest kind of nesting areas for these birds. So, you know, what you get to see, what a researcher would get to witness really is the, the recovery of a lot of these, these nesting areas, um, but in a day-by-day context. So every single day they go out on patrol, they would report what kind of birds they saw, how many, but then also if there were poachers around, any other kind of environmental pressures that may have been brought to bear, you know, um, so, and then there's also flyover reports. So they did a lot of aerial inspection of the of the areas as well and tried to do kind of a thumbnail count of all the different birds.
5: The Audubon touched so many different aspects of Florida from the turn of the century. Andrew Hughes leaves us with the areas of research and the Audubon records waiting to be unearthed.
4: Yeah, I mean, whether you're interested in activism, you know, criminal justice fashion, <laughs> you know, all these things, um, all kind of, uh, uh, are around this issue. So, um, you know, and then if you're interested in specific birds, I mean, the whooping crane, you know, came very close to extinction. Of course, it's still on its way back. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, what's really remarkable too, is just how resilient the environment can be, but also how, how long it can take to undo, you know, the damage or, or to attempt to mitigate some of it.
5: That was Andrew Hughes, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers.
4: You've been listening to
0: Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, where you can get our daily posts today in Florida history and much more. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to read our blog version of Florida Frontiers. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.